to the fact that I'm trapped in hell having to review the Wikipedia pages of horror movies. You know, it it seems unsurmountable when you first get here and realize that there's a crushing loneliness to being in this place. Um, you kind of realize that, like, oh, I'll never see my friends or family again, and, oh, I have a couple pictures, but I really wish I had taken more. Um, you know, I, I regret not being as into photos as um, I could have been, and I really squandered my fiancé's talents as a photographer because I felt self-conscious about the way I looked when, in reality, I should just accept myself in photos, and, you know, if if I accept them, then there'll be more, and I'll have more things to remember around. Um, You kind of push past those kind of thoughts and realize that this is where we are. Um, So I'm trying to take it easy. Um, you know, kind of relaxing. Um, I've gotten into Bachelor in Paradise. It's the only show on, and it's only one season of it, but I don't know, by the sixth watch, I kind of start to believe that Tasha and John Paul Jones are going to make it, you know? Maybe Kaylin isn't making a mistake by choosing the guy in the van. Um, Connor seems to have a person he's more interested in anyway, so who knows how that was going to end up. Blake still kind of sucks, though. Um, I think we all know that. But yeah, uh, there there was a lot that I was... I mean, I was looking forward to stuff on the outside before, but in here, things are cool. The the, 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 the AC is all, always slightly less um, warm than I want it to be, which is a cool sensation. Um, it's neat being able to pile yourself up with as many blankets as you can find and still not be warm. It's it's neat. Um, there's there's a, a coolness to it. <laughs> that I didn't even mean to make a pun there, but I did. <laughs> Whoopsies, that's a wiki coops. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just decided I'd throw myself right into my work. Um, so we're going to talk about some Wikipedia pages for horror movies today. Um, they'll probably be good ones. Um, I, I got an email earlier, so it's time to, to find those links and see what we're going to do. <laughs> uh, you, you can still try and get me out, though. I wouldn't hold that against you, you know, um, just as a whole. Sorry, yeah, I'm uh, getting right into it. Um, we're going to start to... Really? Um... We're going to start today with Saw 4. Why are you saying it like that? This is the fourth one. Okay. Um, Saw 4 is a 2007 American horror film and the fourth installment in the Saw franchise. It was directed by Darren Lynn Bozeman and written by newcomers Marcus Dunstan, Patrick Melton, and Thomas Fenton. It stars Tobin Bell, Scott Patterson, Costas Mandalore, Costas Mandalore, uh, Betsy Russell, and Lyric Bent. 
Are we sure we want to start with the fourth one? They've, there's four that we... Okay. Um, yeah, you can find this page at en.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash saw underscore four. Uh, the four is IV. It's not a, a number four. I'm sorry if that was misleading. Um, I'll try not to make those kind of mistakes in the future. Anyways, the uh, the Wikipedia page you'll find if you go to it is pretty well written out. I'm surprised at how many Saw characters have Wikipedia pages. Oh, never mind. These all just link to the same Saw characters page. It's wild that these are all links on their own. I guess they go down to the person whose profile they are. And that's kind of weird. Anyways, they got a thing. Apparently, um, the critical reception was negative. It had an 18% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the site's consensus says that Saw 4 is more disturbing than compelling, with Mysterial already seen in the prior installments. So it's just a, a filler arc for Saw. They apparently released a soundtrack to it, too. So, I I guess we'll get into the fourth. Am I going to need to know the other three Saw movie Wikipedia pages to understand the Saw 4 Wikipedia page? I hope not. Anyways. Um, a wax-coated microcassette is found in John Kramer's stomach during his autopsy and reveals to Detective Mark Hoffman that, despite his death, the games will continue and he will still be tested. I don't know what that... Who's John Kramer? What games are going to continue and who will be tested? Egg, I don't... Okay. Um. Elsewhere, two men, one with his eyes sewn shut and the other with his mouth sewn shut. That's spooky. They awaken in a mausoleum, chained at the neck to a winch. The blinded man panic and activates the winch before attacking the muted man, who kills him to get a key from his collar to free himself. Okay. Four days after Allison Carey's death, I don't know who that is, um, a SWAT team led by Hoffman and Officer Daniel Rigg find her body. And Hoffman warns Rig against breaking through an unsecured door to reach her. The scene is also investigated by agents Peter Strom and Lindsay Perez, Carrie's FBI contacts, who receive a message and key from her. Noting John and Amanda's young's physical limitations, Strom speculates that a third accomplice was involved and soon becomes suspicious of Rig, who has developed an obsession with saving people in the six months since the disappearance of Detective Eric Matthews. Should I know these people? I don't know anything about what's going on here. That night, Rig is attacked in his home. He awakens and watches a video from Jigsaw, which is where he learns that Eric is still alive and has 90 minutes to save himself, with Hoffman's life at risk as well. Meanwhile, he must play his own game in order to face and overcome his obsession. That's pretty spooky. Rig finds a pimp named Brenda bound to a chair in his living room and accidentally activates the trap, which slowly tears her scalp off. That's spooky. He manages to free her, but kills her in self-defense when she attacks him with a knife in order to evade arrest. 
Uh-oh. Rig is then led to a motel and instructed to abduct the owner, Ivan Lansness, who Rig learns is a serial rapist. That's no good. That's not good at all. He forces Ivan into a trap, which requires Ivan to blind both of his eyes as payment for photographing and videotaping his crimes. Cool. In order to escape, however, Ivan only binds one of his eyes, and the trap dismembers him. That's spooky. I don't like it when problems happen to people's eyes. That's no good. Next, Rig is led to a school where he once investigated the abuse of a young student. Rig finds that the student's parents are impaled by metal spikes. That's spooky. Rex, who's already died from blood loss, and his abused wife Morgan, who's remained alive at his expense by pulling the spikes from both of their bodies. Wow, that's spooky. I don't like that at all. The spikes were flesh wounds for Morgan, but critical arteries for Rex. Rig gives her a key to free herself, then turns on a fire alarm and goes to the location of his final test. Why do they keep making these movies? Those don't seem spooky, just messed up and bloody. I don't like this at all. While investigating Rig's apartment, the agents find a clue that leads them to Jill Tuck, John's ex-wife. Jill reveals that John worked in civil engineering and property development, and she miscarried her son Gideon after seven months when Cecil Adams, a drug addict, slammed a door into her stomach while robbing her clinic. That's no good. At the motel, the agents learned that the room was rented out to a lawyer named Art Blank. That's a dumb name. Anyways, the survival of the mausoleum trap who vanished two weeks prior. Art is revealed to be the man overseeing the current game when he hands Eric a gun. Man, you're a dumb name and you're a bad guy? That's no good. At the school, the agents learned that all three victims, along with Jill, were Art's clients. Strom and Perez find a puppet and a tape recorder in another room, which plays a cryptic message for Perez before its face explodes, sending shrapnel into her face. Ugh. After Perez is hospitalized, Strom furiously questions Jill. He learns how John ended his work with Art after falling into his depression, and that Cecil became the first victim of John's games. G games is in quotation marks, but I don't know how to really get that across. John's games. I guess that works. Anyways, Strom connects her story and a prior clue to the Gideon meatpacking plant, the location of Rig's final test. Strom arrives after Rig, but ends up following Jeff, the protagonist in Saw 3. After finding Jeff in the sick room, Agent Strom shoots him in self-defense, when Jeff demands Strom to tell him where his daughter is. Meanwhile, Art pulls out a device which will free him, Eric and Hoffman once the timer expires. If used before then, a pair of pinchers will sever his spine. Ooh. Rig finds them and is shot by Eric as he breaks into the room with one second to spare, releasing two overhead ice blocks that swing down and crush Eric's head, killing him. Just two giant blocks of ice? Alright. Rig shoots and kills Art, believing he is responsible for the game, 
only to learn that Art's tape recorder that has interference and continued obsession caused Eric's death. Hoffman, the actual accomplice, releases himself from the chair, but leaves Rig to die. That's... I don't remember which one Rig is, so that might be a bad thing. I don't... I don't know who anyone is at this point. He then seals Strom in the sick room and leaves the plant. The scene then cuts to Hoffman at the morgue, revealing that John's autopsy took place after the events of the film. Is that a big twist? I guess that's a big twist, huh? Um, I don't understand anything that happened in this movie, and I'm not sure how it got to 92 minutes of runtime. I don't understand how they keep making these movies. I guess that's why they stopped, but I'm not sure I get it. Hopefully the next one will be better. It looks like our next movie is going to be The Final Destination. This is The Final Destination, also known as Final Destination 4 or Final Destination 3. Oh, this is the this is the fourth one. I get it. It's episode 4. This is the fourth one cuz we're doing episode 4. I get it. So, The Final Destination is a 2009 American 3D supernatural horror film written by Eric Bruss and directed by David R. Ellis. It's a standalone sequel to Final Final Destination 3. It's hard not saying Final Fantasy, because I liked those back when I lived outside. The only one in here is Final Fantasy 13. It's not my favorite. Anyways, a standalone sequel to Final Destination 3, it's the fourth installment in the Final Destination film series. It stars Bobby Campo, Chantal Van Santen, and Mikel T. Williamson. How's this a standalone sequel to Final Destination 3 if there are more sequels to Final Destination? I don't think that works. Whatever. The uh, Wikipedia page for this one's pretty good. It's got a solid cast section, and it's got a surprising amount of space dedicated to the soundtrack and to the score. The score gets a lot, considering that you can't play any of them, and it even tells how long each track is. It's surprisingly weird. The soundtrack is interesting. This movie features songs by Why Can't We Be Friends by War, The Stoop by Lil Jackie, and Corona and Lime by Shwayze. I don't know any of these songs, but they're probably good. They were good enough to get into Final Destination 4, after all. Anyways, if you want to follow along with the plot summary, you can go to en.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash the final, I'm sorry, the underscore final underscore destination. I don't want you to end up at the wrong place, so I should probably make sure I get that right. But the plot of this movie is as follows. College student Nick O'Bannon visits the McKinley Speedway with his girlfriend Lori Milligan and their hunts Hunt Wynorski and Janet Cunningham. While watching the race, Nick has a premonition of a horrible car accident that sends debris into the stands, causing the stadium to collapse. That's gotta be a big fucking crash if it's gonna cause the entire stadium to crash. 
Anyways, while Nick panics, a fight breaks out, and several people leave the stadium, including Lori, Hunt, Janet, security guard George Latner, a mechanic Andy Kutzer, his girlfriend Nadia Monroy, racist tow truck driver Carter Daniels, and mother Samantha Lane. You better write all those down, because there's probably going to be a quiz. <laughs> That's a little wick humor for you. Anyways, as Nadia berates the group, a stray, a stray tire flies out from the stadium and decapitates her. That's a pretty far-flying tire, but okay. That sucks. Anyways, several days after the accident, Carter tries to burn a cross on George's lawn for preventing him from saving his wife but a chain reaction causes him to be dragged down the street on fire before his tow truck explodes. That's what you get for doing some clan bullshit, I guess. Good work, whatever thing is killing people in this one. Probably not the bye-bye man, but it's probably about as dumb. The next day, Samantha is leaving a beauty salon when a rock propelled by a lawnmower is shot through her eye, killing her. What is killing people in this movie? Is it just... fate? After reading about the events in the newspaper and the past disasters that, par that parallel to the speedways, Nick becomes convinced that death is after them. Ja uh, huh? Hunt and Janet don't believe them, but they manage to convince George to help. The group visits the mechanic shop to warn Andy but he's killed when a CO2, a CO2 tank launches him through a chain-link fence. Okay. After receiving a premonition involving water, Nick tries to warn Hunt, who's gone to a country club pool. At the same time, George and Lori try to find Janet, who becomes trapped in a malfunctioning car wash, and they narrowly manage to save her. Hunt drops his lucky coin in the water after accidentally turning the pool's drain on. When he dives in, he's sucked down to the drain, where the increasing suction eventually sucks his organs through the drain pipe. Jesus. That's spooky. Afterward, George admits that he tried to commit suicide several times, but all attempts have failed. Nick believes saving Janet must have ruined Death's plan, and the group celebrates. I got bad news for you, Nick. There's still a couple paragraphs left in this plot summary. I don't know why you think that you can stop death. Because death is the one that wants to take you. It's just inevitable. Is death inevitable? Can I die here? Or am I just stuck? Which is worse? Anyways, four days later, Nick begins to see more omens and remembers asking cowboy Jonathan Groves to switch seats prior to the accident, meaning that he's next. Okay. Nick and George track Jonathan down at the hospital, where he remained in traction recovering from the accident. They witness him being crushed by an overflowing bathtub that falls through the ceiling. Damn, that's no good. As they leave... George is suddenly hit by a speeding ambulance, and Nick realizes that Lori and Janet are still in danger. You didn't realize that when the bathtub crashed through and killed a guy? 
Nick, you're, you gotta be a little quicker on the uptake. He tracks him down at a mall cinema and convinces Lori to leave, but Janet refuses and is fatally injured by falling debris when a chain reaction causes the screen to explode. I hope the movie was good. It probably wasn't. A multitude of explosions race Nick and Lori through the mall until they're trapped on a malfunctioning escalator. Lori is dragged into the gears and killed. That's no good. I think it's very funny that there's a section where they're trying to outrun explosions in a horror movie. That really seems like some action movie shit. Also, getting dragged into gears of escalators is no joke. That's a big fear of mine. Luckily, I don't think escalators exist in here anymore, but make sure your shoes are tied before you get on an escalator. That's a bit of wiki advice from me to you. Anyways, this turns out to be another premonition, but George is killed by the ambulance before Nick can warn him. Didn't he already get hit by the ambulance? Did he not? Oh, this is... Hold on. This was... This is all a vision. None of this happened. Nick sees the future and saw this, I guess. Wikipedia, you're a little, little, a little confusing on what happened here. If you could send me a letter and let me know what's going on, that would be really helpful. Anyways, at the mall, Lori begins seeing omens as well. Having failed in his premonition, Nick runs back to the mall to stop the explosion before it occurs. He's pinned to a wall by a nail gun, but manages to stop the fire before it spreads to several combustible barrels, saving everyone. Okay. Two weeks later, Nick notices a loose scaffold prop while heading into a cafe and warns a construction worker about it before going inside. While talking with Lori and Janet, he starts seeing more omens and alludes to the theory that the chain of events since the Speedway disaster were meant to lead them to where they needed to be for death to strike. Just as he realizes this, the scaffold outside collapses, causing a truck to swerve and crash into the coffee shop, killing all three of them. Janet is crushed under the tires, Lori is decapitated by the impact, and Nick is propelled into a wall, dislocating his jaw. That That's it, all. The truck gets him. I'm not sure I understand the point of these movies. This is just that you were supposed to die one way, but then you didn't, so now you're going to die another way? Doesn't really seem that spooky, but okay. Anyways, um, the next movie we're going to talk about is Friday the 13th, the final chapter. This one is the fourth installment in the Friday the 13th chapter. That makes sense. Though, I know that there's a lot more than four of these, so the final chapter is a really weird name. I'm sure that I'm not the first one to make a joke about that, though, so I won't. Uh, anyways, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, is a 1984 American slasher film directed by Joseph Zito, produced by Frank Mancusco Jr., and starring Kimberly Beck, Corey Feldman, Crispin Glover, and Ted White as Jason Voorhees. It's the fourth installment in the Friday the 13th film series. 
Picking up immediately after the events of Friday the 13th Part 3, the story follows a presumed dead Jason Voorhees brought to the morgue, where he spontaneously revives and escapes, returning to Crystal Lake to continue his killing spree. Okay. It kind of sucks if you can end a movie and then the next movie the director can just kind of be like, JK, he's alive again. But I guess that's the horror movie universe, so is where we are. If you want to follow along with this plot summary, you can do so at en.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash Friday underscore the underscore 13th colon underscore the underscore final underscore chapter. Uh, the 13th is, is, is not written out. It's just 13th colon. Uh, colon is also not written out. It's just the, the two dots. Anyways, um, the plot of this movie is that the night after the events at Higgins Haven, uh, police clean up the grounds around Jason Voorhees' body, uh, believed to be dead, is taken to the morgue. At the hospital, Jason spontaneously revives and escapes from the cold storage, murdering the coroner Alex, er, I'm sorry, murdering the coroner Axel with a hacksaw and gutting Norse Mergen with a scalpel. I forgot how to talk during that sentence. Guiding Nurse Morgan with a scalpel. I'm surprised that Axel from Kingdom Hearts shows up in this one, but I guess those characters show up in all sorts of worlds and universes, so it's not super out of place. Anyways, the following day, a group of teenagers drive to Crystal Lake for the weekend. How come no one closed this camp? If people keep coming to life and kill people at this camp, you'd think that they would have closed the camp at some point, right? Maybe I'm missing something, but it seems... I, I, I wouldn't send my kids to this camp, that's for sure. The group consists of Paul, his girlfriend Sam, Virgin Sarah, her boyfriend Doug, socially awkward Jimmy, and jokester Ted. On the way, the group comes across Pamela Voorhees' tombstone and a hitchhiker, who's soon killed by Jason poor guy. The teens arrive and meet neighbors Trish Jarvis, her 12-year-old brother Tommy, and the family dog Gordon. While going for a walk the next day, the teens meet twin sisters Tina and Terry and go skinny dipping with them. Trish and Tommy happen upon the scene and Trish is invited to a party taking place that night. Afterwards, when their car breaks down, Trish and Tommy are helped out by a young man named Rob. They take him to their house, where he meets their mother, and Tommy shows him several monster masks he made himself before Rob leaves to go camping. It's probably not going to end well for Rob. Later that night, the teens begin the party. A jealous Sam sees Tina flirting with Paul and leaves. She goes out to the lake, where Jason impales her with a spear from under a raft. That's spooky. When Paul goes out to look for her, he's stabbed in the groin with a harpoon gun. That's what you get for flirting, I guess. Terry tries to leave the party early, but before she can get on her bike, Jason stabs her with a spear. A lot of spears in this one. Mrs. Jarvis arrives home and discovers a power outage. While searching for her children and Gordon, she's killed off-screen. Sorry, Mrs. Jarvis, you probably deserve better. Trish and Tommy soon arrive and realize that their mother's missing. Trish goes to search for her and finds Rob's campsite. 
it's revealed that Rob is actually the brother of Jason's victim, Sandra, from the second installment. We got interplot continuity. Rob further explains to her that Jason is still alive, and he came to Crystal Lake to get revenge for the murder of his sister. After sleeping with Tina, Jimmy goes downstairs to get a bottle of wine. Jason pins his hand with a corkscrew before striking him in the face with a meat cleaver. That's pretty spooky. Tina looks out a window upstairs when she's grabbed by Jason and thrown to her death, causing uh, crashing on the car. While a stone Ted watches stag films with a film projector, he gets too close to the projector screen and is stabbed in the head with a kitchen knife from the other side. What's a stag film? Wikipedia defines a stag film as a stag film or smokers, are terms used to describe a type of pornographic film produced secretly in the first two-thirds of the 20th century. Typically, they had certain traits. They were brief in duration, were silent, depicted explicit or graphic sexual behavior intended to appeal to men, and were something else. That's where the little pickup thing ends on Wikipedia. So I'm going to leave it at that. I think that we get the idea. Anyways, he watches the porn and dies. Because it's a horror movie. Jason then goes upstairs, where Doug and Sarah finish making love in the shower. After Sarah leaves, Jason kills Doug by crushing his head against the shower tile. That's pretty spooky. When Sarah screams upon finding Doug's body, she tries to escape, only for Jason to drive a double-bit axe through her chest. Damn. Worried for Tommy's safety, Trish and Rob return to the house. They then go next door to investigate and discover the teen's bodies. Gordon flees, and Rob is killed by Jason in the basement as Trish runs home, taking Rob's machete with her. She and Tommy barricade the house, but Jason breaks in and chases them into Tommy's room. Trish lures Jason out of the house and escapes, then returns home and is devastated to learn that Tommy didn't run away. Oh no, Tommy, get out of there. She senses that Jason's behind her and tries to fight him off with the machete, but is overpowered. Tommy, having disguised himself to look like Jason as a child, disguised himself to look like Jason as a child, distracts him long enough for Trish to hit him with a machete, but she merely whacks off his mask. That's spooky. As Trish stands horrified at Jason's deformed face, Tommy takes the machete and strikes to the side of his skull, causing him to collapse on the floor and split his head upon impact. That's spooky. When Tommy notices that Jason's fingers are slightly moving, he continues to hack at his body, screaming, Die! Die! While Trish repeatedly yells out his name. That's real spooky. At the hospital, Trish is visited by Tommy. He rushes in, embraces her, and gives a disturbed look while staring into the camera. That's a pretty spooky one. I guess... Jason didn't die, though, because they made a bunch more of these movies, so. Good work, I guess, but it didn't work. Anyways, I guess those are a bunch of fourth episodes of stuff. And uh, this has been a fourth episode of Wikipedia. A lot of these said that they were going to be the end of their franchises, and they weren't. And I guess this isn't going to be the end of this one, either. Um... I know I was talking a big game about being cool in here, um, but but I I really would like it if you could get me out.
The producer's really mean. I don't know why I have to keep doing these. Anyways, um... It's hard to find something to end on when you know you're just going to have to make another one of these. So, uh, bye, I guess. Good luck. Don't get sucked in here. You don't want to be trapped in a franchise you didn't start either. It's not as fun as these movies make it seem. And, uh, these movies don't even really seem that fun anyways. Bye, I guess. Welcome to 294 Note Streak, the best idea for a podcast of all time. We use a bracket to rank every song that's ever been in a Guitar Hero game. That's pretty much it. That's the whole idea. My name's Joe. I'm Riley. We do that thing we just said every... Mm, two weeks? We rank it on how much we like the song and if it makes a fun chart to play. Is 294 an equally divisible number for a bracket? It's not! <laughs> Is Thunder Kiss 65 the best white zombie song? Can anything topple Hangar 18 in this race to the top? Will Pat Benatar's Heartbreaker defeat Michael Jackson's Beat It? Yes. <laughs> yeah, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Should Fat Lip be in Guitar Hero? <laughs> Find out by listening to 294 Note Streak on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or a better app. And remember, enjoy music.